The Chris Sheeran Show, only on YesNetwork.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest and greatest edition of The Chris Sheeran Show on YesNetwork.com and iTunes Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Sheeran, joined with Lou DiPietro. Crazy announcer voices, ha! That's that's my uh, sports guy uh, voice, which uh, I don't really turn on and off. There's some people who do that. You know, they turn on a voice when they come on the air, and then as soon as they get off the air, they're back to their normal selves. I, the sportscaster voice, yeah. I, 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 I've I, just never done it. That's, I, and I'll be the first to admit, I don't have pipes. I mean, my voice, I think it stinks. I think it stinks on ice. Some people have told me that I have a, I have a great voice, good for broadcasting. I've heard great voices. And you got the face for podcasts. I do. I, if anyone I do. I, I, I've heard great voices, and I do not fall into the category of great voice for radio. That's um, it's one of the things that if you listen to... We I have, do have the face for radio, though. You are correct. I do. I do. Yes, definitely. Especially the beard. I'm talking about me. Um, we have two of the, the best in the business in our employ at the way they are on air is the way they are. I and, and, you, and Michael K. And Michael K. You can listen to Michael on Yankee games. You can listen to Michael on the radio, or you can talk to Michael as he walks by your cube when he's here and says hello and chats. And he's same thing. The same tone of voice. Same guy. The same. And the same know, cadence. He doesn't put on any airs for and, broadcasting. And the same with Ian. And this is why I love doing this with you because you know we come on and we have a certain uh, rundown of what we're going to do. We have a, we have an agenda. Right. Of we have an agenda, but. We come on, and this isn't even discussed in the in the pre podcast meeting. And now we're talking about Michael K. And since you brought it up, you know, watching his timeline on Twitter, and I get why Michael does engage because you know what? When it comes down to it, I just think he loves the fan base, and I think he loves engaging with the people who engage with him. But the thing that gets to me is now look, people who don't know Michael K. on a personal level, like Lou does, like I do. Um, and haven't been around him and know how he is, you know, he might be a tough pill to swallow, I guess, for some people because they constantly ridicule him on Twitter. But if you really knew Michael and how self-deprecating he is and how much he cares about, you know, getting everything right and being a perfectionist, yeah, uh, you would know why. He does go after people who go after, and you can you could ridicule him for many things. <laughs> Yo, like, you can. like like his diet habits are are often discussed. And on, he'll be and on, he'll, on right. the Michael K. Show, and he'll be the first one to tell you you're right, right. And, and he'll continue to be self deprecating, and and that's one of the reasons why I love the guy because he's just an everyday guy. Mm-hmm. He he reminds me a lot of Chris Russo. Chris Russo <clears throat> might you know. He grew up with a lot of money. He has a lot of money now. But off the air, you would never know Chris Russo was that guy. He, I remember going to Mark Malusis' wedding with my wife, and we sat with Jeannie and Chris at the cocktail hour. And there were so many people at that wedding. They want to know about the Mets. They want to know about the Yankees. And he gets up to get a drink. And it's an hour before he gets back to the table because everybody's talking to him. And I remember my wife turning to Jeannie and saying, doesn't that bother you? And she goes, ah, I'm used to it. You know, <laughs> it, once he leaves, it takes him hours to get back. It's fine. But Chris talks to you like you're a long lost friend. Now, this is a guy who's done pretty much everything. He's got a Marconi for crying out loud mm-hmm. for what he's done on the radio. Uh, great personality on and off the air. 
It's the same thing with Michael. Um, and that's the way, like, I try to be. Look, I know I'm not on that level. I want to be on that level someday. I aspire to do that, but I'm not on that level. Uh, if I was, though, I would be the same exact way. Yeah. I, I think it's important. We, we can we – can Spin this around to the, to the Twitterverse because we do interact with a few people regularly on Twitter. We, we throw them shout-outs on the show. Our, our good friend, We Must Be Nets. and uh, John. And, and Matt. Matt. Who, who, you know, who tweets <laughs> Matt, us a lot. Matt listens as soon as it gets posted and starts tweeting like Live lines, tweeting it, yeah. Lines so, from the podcast. Yeah, we interact. And, and there's a handful of other people that tweet at me regularly when I post stuff. I, I don't use Twitter as much as... As much as I used to, I don't. Either. I don't throw a lot of personal stuff out there, and when I do use it, it's mostly baseball related during the season kind of stuff. And when people do tweet back at me, I, I do like to engage for the sole fact that these people. There's now a thousand and one of them. Last I checked, so I've reached the magical one K mark. Next up, the nice. blue check. Good for you. Um, that care about what I have to say, and I'm sure you know a hundred of them are people I know, or you know. If my wife had a Twitter account, she would follow me, I would imagine. But these are the people that care enough. There's, you can follow anyone in the world can have a Twitter account, and most of the people in the world do. And you can follow anyone, but these are the thousand people that feel I'm important enough to follow for various well, reasons. So I will engage with them as long as they're not attacking me or, like, you know, if, if they're going to call me out on stuff, like, I'm not, I'm not going to engage and get into a flame war with them, but – for the most part, I will engage with people on Twitter because, again, they're the thousand people that find me important enough and what I have to say important enough to follow me on Twitter. And there should be more because you are extremely good at what you do, and that's just me. You know. And that's what's, that's what's funny. To spin that all the way back around, that's what's funny about you were saying about Michael engaging with, with fans is that so many people ridicule him. And not just him, but everybody that's a public figure ridicule him and – other people to the point where they just poke the bear and poke the bear and poke the bear. And then when the bear snaps back, they're all like, oh, why did the bear snap at me? Look at the bear. He's such a jerk. You keep poking well, what, what do you expect, dumbass? Like, seriously. Uh, well, I my, – my It makes me – it makes me sad. My, my basic rule is I'm not going to get into a, you know, a Twitter battle going back and forth where everybody could see what I'm saying, especially when, when profanity comes into play. If you use profanity about me or about anybody else that I talk about on my Twitter timeline, you're blocked. And, yeah. and that's it. It's over. It's done with. Now, do I use profanity in everyday life? Of course I yeah. do. And I, I, think I curse like a trucker. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think I've dropped a, an S-bomb once or I, – I, I've used the a-hole once, and I think I've dropped the S-bomb once or twice. But it was uh -huh. like this is a holy blank moment. Like yeah, it wasn't I mean, like, you know, you're an S-head. I, 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 you know. You, you can't do that. We're, we are – as much as we are – you say you, you're not on that level, but you aspire to be that level. As much as we're quote-unquote not on that level, yeah. we are on that level because we're – we're not necessarily celebrities, but we are public figures, right. I guess, the best way figures. to say it. And, you know, I only have 3,800 Twitter followers, 38 and change. Yeah. Um, and everybody else here on the S Network is in the 20 to 30 to yeah. over 100K when they're on the air. And a lot of people may think that bothers me. But to tell you the truth, I mean, I like my 3,800 and change followers. And if I don't tweet enough. Or if I'm not hip enough for people to follow and they follow me and they give me a try and then mm -hmm. they say, eh, he doesn't tweet. I, I don't – if you unfollow me, it's not like I'm looking at my follower list every day. Oh, my God. He unfollow. Oh, my God. She yeah. unfollow. I, I don't care. I'm on there and I, I, to joke around, to get my news and – to tell you the truth, I'm in your boat. I mean, I don't really do it a lot anymore. If I'm doing a Nets game, if I'm here doing the pre and post game, 
I'll try to get some stats out there because I know a lot of Nets and Doug. I can't forget about Doug. I mean, these guys follow me. They rely on people like me for their Nets information. So that's when I get in there. And when yeah. the Nets are playing, I'll throw out my stupidity and a couple of movie lines and I'll, I'll make a yeah. meme. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then, and and then they, they appreciate that. And then you and Devin will get into something and then I'll jump in once in a right. while and it becomes right. a, a little fun. comedy act. It's, it's fun. fun. Yeah. And then we get Devin on the podcast and away we go. But let's get back to baseball. Yeah. Forget him. He was At- in 70 degree weather. <laughs> Forget him. Um, Forget you, Dan. Before we get to the Yankees, Joe Girardi had his press conference earlier. Uh, and we're taping this on Thursday, uh, and we have a big lineup. We have Michael we're, at three. We have the yeah. uh, first uh, hot stove from Tampa later yeah. with and Meredith. And then Joe Girardi center stage premieres tonight, and there's going to be a clip. Um, we, I encourage you to watch it. It's fantastic. It was taped in December, um, just airing now, obviously, to capitalize on spring training. But there's a, there's a clip that will be posted on the web later tonight. Uh, it's the third segment of the show, so you'll want to tune in about 8.15 if you can't make it mm-hmm. live, where Joe Girardi talks about his mom. And the bond he has with his mom and her passing and all that and gets emotional. And it's like, you know, that scene in Wayne's World where it's like for your Emmy consideration. Yes. Where Wayne goes, like it's it's one hell of a segment of center stage with Joe Girardi, the man, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Joe Girardi, the Yankees manager. Many people see when they will look at him on TV and on our airwaves. So definitely tune in for that as well. You know, before <laughs> we get to Girardi, but that's a very good heads up out of you. But before we get to Girardi and the Yankees, um, Adam Rubin. Sent something out there. He's an ESPN staff writer. Does the Mets. Yep. T- Terry Collins said something. I have to bring it up. Yeah. I have to. Adam, yeah, Adam covers the Mets. For, um, he's, he's their Wally Matthews. He asked – somebody <clears throat> asked – I guess USA Today asked Terry Collins about sabermetrics and analytics. And this, <laughs> this was his very Chris Sheeran-like response. Uh, it's become a young man's game, especially with all the technology stuff. You've got to be involved in. I'm not very good at it. I don't enjoy it like other people do. I'm not going to sit there today and look at all these bleeping numbers and try to predict this guy is going to be a great player. OPS this, OPS that, GPS, LCSs, DSDs. You know who has good numbers? Good bleeping players. <laughs> oh, his cookie, his cookie crisp is off the charts, but his Vorp oh waffle. Oh, my God. Is, I... We yeah, sabermetrics. Thank you for bringing that to the table. Sabermetrics is a is a finite line between people who love it and people who hate it. And David Cohn is on the people who love it side of the line. You can have a great convo with Coney um, about sabermetrics. It's a phone number that doesn't even have a full phone number, so I know it's a robocall <laughs> scam. They've called me many times. Okay, I Stop. was just pointing it out. Um, you know, you could talk to them, and there's some that look good, and there's some, like, how do you really value a replacement player? And there's so many formulas for war and this and that, OPS plus and ERA plus, and the well, only the, the only two I really take any cadence in when looking at numbers is fielding independent pitching on the pitching side as like a, okay, you know, this guy, his team stinks behind him, so his ERA is higher because he has you know, a statue playing shortstop instead of Didi Gregorius or Ozzie Smith. Uh, That's really the only one I take on that side. And OPS adjusted the parks, the OPS plus Mm -hmm. on the batting side, because again, it's easier to hit a lot of doubles and triples if you play 81 games in Comerica than it is if you play 81 games in the great American ballpark. Former uh, off the wall co-host Joe Oriema and I used to talk about sabermetrics all the time. And, uh, the, the one thing that kept coming up, and I think we even talked about it with Kevin Kernan of the New York Post, well, and I think Kevin actually brought it up, and he said, you know, what if, and it was Kevin Euclid at the time, you know, let's, he says, let's take Kevin Euclid, for example. What if he wakes up 
You would say he's a pretty much sabermetrician's dream when, when he was with the, the Red Greek Sox. The Greek god of walks. Yeah. That's his nickname. When, yeah. he, when he was with the Red Sox. So what if for, I don't know, two, three weeks, he's playing with a tweaked hamstring or a stiff neck or a minor injury that, you know, would pretty much shelve anybody else for a time on the DL, but he plays through it, and his play suffers. He makes a couple of errors. Uh, his batting average dips. Uh, so those numbers change. But you cannot factor in. He didn't tell anybody. You can't factor that in. So those numbers, along with his numbers that everybody is familiar with, uh, suffer. So how do you really judge somebody if they're injured and playing and not telling anybody? Is there a sabermetric for you that? Can't. You can't. See, the, the, that's the other very thing. interesting way to look. See, the other thing about it is there's a lot of like you know weighted runs created plus and this and that. There's I'm all, out. All these I, stats. Right after and you said weighted, I was done. Here's the thing: I can look at batting average and say, okay, last year uh, Brett Gardner was a 269 hitter, right? Somewhere around. That. I don't remember what his exact number is. Say, all right, last year Brett Gardner was a 270 hitter. You know what that tells me right off the bat? One out of every four times he goes to the plate, Brett Gardner is going to get a hit. Mm-hmm. Are there spots where he's going to go 0 for 15? Sure. Are there spots where he's going to go 10 for 15? Sure. Add them together, that's 10 for 30. There you go. But, you know, on, on the whole, you, you kind of see what kind of hitter he is. A guy that has 120 RBIs tells me he's a middle-of-the-order hitter, comes up a lot with runners on base, and succeeds. A guy with 40 home runs, it tells me, yeah, he's got pretty good power. I don't know what a, what a, what a 726 VORP tells me. Or, you know, oh, his, his WRC plus was 93. WKRP what? Okay. You know, I understand that these are, you know, some of these numbers are based on like 100 is league average, but then what's league average? 259, 16, and 66 yeah. last year. You know, you look at the numbers of shortstops in Major League Baseball last year, and Didi Gregorius hit 270 with nine home runs. Is that league average? Because there's a handful of shortstops like Tulo and, you know, Johnny Peralta that are going to hit you 15, 20 home runs and hit 300. There's a handful of shortstops like Clint Barmas who are going to hit 220 with three home runs. So what is league average? It, it, it's all very subject. It's subjectively quantifying qualitative data. That's that's my problem with many sabermetrics. That is a very astute and intelligent way to. The put other one, if it counts, it, the other one, if it counts, is BABIP, batting average on balls in play. Because mm-hmm. I can look at that and go, if a guy has a 250 average and a 380 BABIP, I can tell you that's Adam Dunn, like right away. Like all right, the guy strikes out a ton because. If his BABIP is 100 and change points higher than his batting average, he strikes out way too much. Hey, BABIP! Yeah. What is so, that again? Hey, Cabot. No. What? Batting average on balls in play. Batting average on balls in play. So it's basically... it's The formula is like... The formula is more complicated than it makes it out to be. It's like... So if you ground out but have an RBI... You have an RBI ground out or... Yeah. A, well, Your BABIP is zero and you have one RBI. Okay, but it tells it, it's basically an indicator of of it, it's it's an indicator of how much put your thinking caps on how it. much guys put the ball in play. You can gauge a strikeout rate from it again. If, if you have a guy that's that hits again, Adam Dunn, hit, okay, hit one eighty seven or whatever it is a few years ago. His BABIP was like three forty mm-hmm. because he's a three true outcome guy. He always he either homered, walked, or struck out, and there was very little in between. So you look at that and you can go, okay, well, when this guy puts the ball in play, he either hits it hard, hits a lot of home runs, hits the gaps, but obviously he strikes out a lot because, you know, that's that other 150-point deviation in right. his betting. You know, it's, 
It's at bats minus feast or famine. It's at bats minus strikeouts divided by like the formula okay. is well, bizarre, no, that, but, but it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I can't poop. So that. if you if you come up a hundred times and you get twenty five hits, you're a two fifty hitter. If you strike out seventy five times, your BABIP is a thousand because you have twenty five hits on twenty five balls put in play, and your other seventy five at bats you struck out. That's the easiest way I can I can kind of okay. So a higher BABIP is worse than a lower BABIP? No, not necessarily. Uh, A higher deviation between the two is worse than a lower deviation. Oh, okay. So 750, the deviation between the 250 and the 1,000. Yeah, is is awful. But if you have 25 hits and you struck out once Mm -hmm. and your BABIP is 252, Mm -hmm. It tells me, all right, he's not necessarily a great hitter, but he didn't strike out a lot. Okay. So he at least puts the ball in play. So it's basically play. about strikeouts. Yeah, it's, it's an indicator yeah. of strikeouts, of strikeouts and things Big like indicator. That. Okay, so, great. All right. Now that's that why least... it's the only one I – that's why it's the only one, if that counts, I take credence into because you can tell a guy who's like, well, he strikes out a lot. Okay. Let's mm-hmm. wake everybody up from the sabermetrics discussion. Wake up, everybody. Okay. We're back. It's Lou and Chris. Hi. Hey. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed your nap. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I blame five hour energy. Anyway, um, let's talk about <clears throat> Joe Girardi and what he talked about today. And we're pushing 20 minutes so we can go right to the meat and potatoes of what we wanted to discuss and what we discussed downstairs before we came up here. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the first thing, a, a good jumping off point, Lou, would be uh, Joe Girardi feels that this team is better than last year's team. And yeah. the big reason why is the depth and the flexibility, mm-hmm. not only that he has in the pitching staff, but also Hicks, Chapman and Hicks, Castro. Yeah, Hicks and Castro giving him the flexibility yep. with the everyday lineup as well. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things, it, it's funny, and you expect him to say this because it's true. You know, he said, his, I think his exact quote was, yeah, we're definitely better on paper, but paper doesn't mean anything until you go out and play the games, which we found out in 2013 when they looked great on paper, and then Luis Cruz and David Adams played 80 games at third base. Um, there is no reason on paper or otherwise, unless something catastrophic happens to believe that this team is worse than last year or even equal to last year. Yes, they lost, you know, look at what they lost. They've lost Justin Wilson, John Ryan Murphy, Adam Warren in trades and Chris Young, Stephen Drew and Chris Capuano to free agency and Garrett Jones. Technically they've gained a three time all-star to play second base They've gained a guy who throws a baseball on average faster than any human being on the planet to be their closer. And they've acquired a guy in Aaron Hicks who was once the, like, you know, once a first round, high first round pick, hasn't quite put it all together at the major league level, but is definitely more than a platoon outfielder. You saw how Chris Young hit when he was in there every day against righties last year. The, the positions they've lost, they've upgraded quite well. And everybody else is back. Yes, Greg Bird is hurt, but. Again, second base, huge upgrade over yeah, Stephen Drew Absolutely. and you know maybe even Ref Snyder and Ackley now. Joe Girardi said it best. He's a 25-year-old who almost has 1,000 hits already. Yeah. You upgraded your fourth outfielder. You upgraded the, the third member of your back-end bullpen troika. And there you go. I mean, it, there's no reason not to no, believe I, they're better. As, as long as this team, and it's a big if, and it seems like ever since 2010 – Ever since they won their 27th, it seems like every year, every time this time of the year rolls around, 
we're all saying, if this guy stays healthy, if that guy stays healthy, that's just where the Yankees are right now. Mm-hmm. But and we talked about that on Monday show. I, I, before we continue with this, I, I don't know if you read the Caro today in the Post. No, I haven't read anything today. I was Do here you, for just it's it's an easy, quick read, um, and he basically makes the comparison to this year's Yankees team to the '93 team when they were on the cusp, where they had mm-hmm. some something cooking when down Paul in the O'Neill farm was system. acquired and right. Yeah. So O'Neill is now Castro. You know, he made that juxtaposition. He also talked about how he, Mattingly, when he was in last year, how he said, you know, 93 is when I knew that the team was going to turn for the better and we're going to start getting better. And I guess, so, that, I guess you know, you could draw the allegories there. Then, then Brett Gardner is the Don Mattingly at this point. Right. You know, and the um, elder Yankee yeah, statesman. The, the elder Yankee statesman who came up through the system and been here forever. And I guess that makes, you know, the guys like the Gregoriuses of the world, the guys like the Polonias and the, you know, right. the players that were brought in in that regard. The only thing they're missing is Jimmy Key, really. <laughs> yeah, I, but you know what? Maybe maybe that's... Maybe that's Tanaka. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's Evaldi. Or Evaldi, yeah, you know, you're right. Maybe he's going to be that guy that's the... Or Pineda. He's the guy that's going to be the bridge. You've got the, you know, the potential you just for a brought, new... You just brought two guys up who are big ifs. you got a potential for a new core four. Judge, Bird, Severino, Sanchez. Sanchez. You know, maybe Severino is the Bernie of the group then. You know, he came he's up been or, up already, yeah, yeah, and he made an impact. Absolutely. I guess maybe, you know, even though he's not a homegrown Yankee, he wasn't really, you know, wasn't really an established major leaguer before getting here. So I guess Didi Gregorius maybe could also fill that role if he, you know, mm-hmm. if he continues to play well and blossoms into a great shortstop. But, yeah, it's a very good allegory because yeah, it's, it's very true. They're, they're, the 91, 92 teams were teams. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, the '93 team was on the cusp, and that '94 team had the best record, in, you know, best record in the league when the strike hit. Well, so he, he talked about '65, and then he talked about '82 and the doldrums. Mm-hmm. He said before he knew it, it was 1975, and before he knew it, it was 1993. So these are things that you know Yankee fans who were born in 1990 have no yeah. recollection of. Uh, and the teams that you see the past couple of years, you know, the ones that didn't make the playoffs, the one that did make the playoffs last year and lost in that first yeah. round. Um, one playoff game in three years is not something Yankees fans born yeah, in the 80s and 90s are used to. You're talking about a guy in me that in 1982 I was nine years old, and as an eight-year-old I saw them lose to the Dodgers in the 81 World Series, and then I didn't see them get back to the playoffs until 1995. But you saw them as, would, a, as in your in your infancy of baseball wisdom that was that run of three straight and and two wins yeah, in the late 70s and then 81. But so that was honestly, a mini dynasty. Honestly, 77, 78, I was four and five. I really right. can't remember anything from those. Uh, I was around, but I just don't remember. And I, I was at some of those games during those seasons. Uh, but from 82 to 95 from the time I was nine until the time I was 22. Mm-hmm. Niente. Well, you can Zip, look at it. You can look zilch, at it. And nada. I, I'm going to advance your age three years. Like, just because you can look at Yankees fans that were born in 1970, 80, 90, 2000. Okay. Okay. I was eight. I'm 80. Doug, Doug Williams, our, mm-hmm. our old friend, is 1990. Mm-hmm. So we, him and I had talked about this a bit when we did the yes men back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when it came to playoff str- struggles. You look at a Yankee fan born in 1970, they were six, seven, eight in that where they, you know, that year where they got crushed by the big red machine and then yes. went on to win two in a row. Yes. 
that's for a lot of people the infancy of their baseball fandom. They're hooked as a young kid. The Yankees are good. Everything's happy. The the 70s were a dark time until 1975, 76-ish. In the late 60s. I mean, you could talk to my uncle who just turned 57 the other day about, you know, he was born in 1959. So you can talk to him all day about those dark teams of the late 60s and early yeah, 70s. because that's he wasn't the there for 61. And, yep. and those are the teams he cut his teeth on. Yeah. So for a, someone born in the 70s that's a Yankee fan, they got that little run at the end. And then, like you said, after 81, it was 15 years of darkness before the next, ty- next World Series. You look at a Yankee fan like me, born in 1980. I cut my teeth on the teams 87, 88, 89. Not great. Stump Merrill. Yeah, not great. Bucky Dent as manager, Billy Martin... Two or three times yeah. in that in that era, before he passed in you know, nine, they they were good every now and again. The playoffs were a lot different. So, a ninety win team finishing third in their division was way on the outside looking mm-hmm. in. But for the most part, from eighty five to ninety three, they lost more than they won. Yes, they did. But I still went to games, and I still had my Ricky Henderson jersey as a kid, and blah 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 blah. So ninety six, when I was sixteen years old and a senior in high school, mm-hmm. was like oh, my God, my favorite team just won the World Series. This is awesome. This is great. And then 98, 99, 2000, 2001 in the World Series again, 03. It's like, yeah, they're the greatest team ever. And then it was the mid-2000s where they were the the high-budget, low-put-out low Yankees in the playoffs. To 2009 was like, all right, you know, that kind of gave you the feeling of, great, they can still do it. They're still the best team on the planet, but there's going to be times that they're not going to win the World Series every year. Then you look at the fan born in 90. There you go. They're cutting their teeth on on the dynasty. The team made the playoffs for 20 consecutive years or whatever it was. And then, you know, 2013, 14, 15 hit. And this is something they've never seen before. They're pulling their hair out. Oh, my God, the Yankees, what's going on? This and that. They never lost it's less complete, than 83. It's completely never, different. Never yeah. won less than 83 games. Yeah. They haven't had a sub-500 season We've since. We've seen 69 wins. <laughs> they haven't had a sub-500 <laughs> season since before the strike. Yeah. And that's. That's saying something. So, I mean, and then now Yankee fans born in the two, in 2000 who are now 15, 16 years old, you know, if the Yankees win the World Series this year or next year, that's what it's going to look like. They're going to understand a little bit better what I went through right. as a Yankee fan. The, the Yankees teams of the late 2000s were okay, and yes, they won the World Series, so maybe it's more of the 70s allegory there. And somewhere that, there's a Cubs fan with an AK-47 right. blowing away their computer. <laughs> And somewhere there's a Cubs fan who was alive the last time they won the World Series, but he was a baby then and is a hundred and change now. So yeah, who knows? Benjamin Button. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Fun little aside. Good little breakdown. Anyway. Yeah. But let's go back to Joe Girardi. A couple other things uh, that we should bring up uh, before our magic time ends on this. Uh, oh, we can podcast go. We can we... go long. Oh, I know. I know. Because uh, we may or may not be here early next week, depending on our move to the new studio. Yeah. Which is the old studio, yeah. <laughs> which is my office. Right. Uh, so everybody downstairs in Cubeland gets to hear me scream instead of no one here. They can't hear you scream for miles. <laughs> Here's Christopher. Anyway, uh, first thing is uh, that Joe Girardi was basically peppered on, and, and you had to expect questions on our oldest Chapman to come up, and they did. And mm-hmm. you know, basically, to not to beat around the bush, they. You know, a lot of the reporters were, they wanted Joe's thoughts on, you know, if he would have made the deal, if he felt uncomfortable about the deal, uh, how he's going to move forward after the deal, how he could 
name him the closer before any suspension comes down. So those were the basic questions. And, you know, in any kind of media market, they have to be asked because it's a story. Especially in New York. Yeah, it's a story. Um, the th- I just didn't like some of them. I-, I didn't like the first couple. Okay. But then as you started to get further and further into the press conference, you just started getting these outlandish, you know, questions that Joe Girardi doesn't, he, he can't answer them. There's, you know, every year, and this is now the two, three, four, five, fifth year I've done this as part of, as part of the team and seeing the Joe Girardi preseason, I guess, for season opening, whatever you want to call it, press conference. And every year, you know, there's going to be one topic that's going to be, that's going to be the horse that's beaten until it's dead, dragged up, beaten some more, put into the ground, dug up, and beaten once again. You know, it was Jeter and Moe's retirements, you know, had been announced. Um, actually, Jeter's wasn't. Moe's had been, you know, this is my last season, whatever. So you knew those were going to be allegories throughout the whole season. But in spring training, it was, you know, okay, last year was, oh, what's Tanaka's elbow going to do? And then this and that. And so I mean, it's the health and this and that. And A-Rod. And you, you kind of have a couple ideas of what the topics are going to be based on what's happened in the past season and in the offseason. And this year you knew it was going to be, you know, there wasn't a lot of change. There wasn't a lot of controversy. There was There's nobody retiring this year. You kind of knew it was going to be a role. This Chapman was going to be a high priority in terms of questions. But, yeah, I agree with you. That, I mean – there were some that were asked. It's like, what kind of answer do you expect and right. or are you looking for? Like, you know, one was asked about, um, you know, if is there a player where, you know, they may be traded or acquired or whatever and you would go to the general manager and be like, I just can't manage player X. What, what kind of answer do you expect? Do you expect any – not just Judge Rodney. Do you expect anybody to answer that? Be like, yeah, you know, if the guy's a, a murderer, rapist, uh, insert crime here, yeah, I just can't manage him. Well, someone else can, mm-hmm. I'm sure. So – what I mean, what kind of answer are you – on a point that's been belabored like Look, that already, what kind of answer are you expecting? You cannot get on Joe Girardi for the Yankees bringing in our oldest Chapman. Brian Cashman – That's a question for Cash and Hal. Yeah, yeah exactly. And we, we talked about this. They, they vetted it before they did it. They yep. wouldn't have done it. And, you know, the guy hasn't played a, a game in a Yankee uniform yet. He hasn't. He will wear number 54. For all you numerophiles out there. Yes. I saw your tweet. Yeah, uh, Wally Matthews and Brian Hoke tweet, had tweeted the, some of the new numbers earlier today. So if you hadn't seen that, he's number 54. But yeah, anyway, go ahead. but my, my point is, you know, he can only give you what he could answer. And what he could answer, uh, according to that, is how he's going to handle the situation now that the deal is done. They asked him, too, if he had any input on the deal. And I can't – I think he said he really didn't. No. He was told after it happened. And, and to be fair, this doesn't just go for Joe. This goes for any coach that's not the general manager, that's not in an Andy Reid situation. Input into a deal should be minimal at best, and that should only be like, uh, you know, we have a list of guys they want. Who can you, you know, who do you think is, who do you think is easiest to deal with losing? Or, hey, you manage this guy in, you know, if they were going to trade for Hanley Ramirez, hey, you manage this guy in Miami, what's, what's the deal? He still That's might. It. He still might get suspended. That that hasn't been decided yet, and it it will be before the season. Obviously, whether he will or won't. Uh, but I, I think he was fine in naming him the closer because he is a closer. That's what he's. That's what he knows, and that's what he's good at. And you ha- and if you set him up with 
Miller and Batances. I mean, yeah, the rest of the rest of the relievers on the Yankees forty man roster have something like fifty career saves, and forty of them, forty five of them came between Miller and Batances last right. season. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, listen, really, and, you know. And, and here's the other point. Before I forget, I'm in Girardi's camp with this line of thinking. This is what he said during the press conference, and I'm not directly quoting. I'm just paraphrasing. But he said, you know, I'd like to meet someone who, who hasn't done anything wrong in their life because I want to go up to you and see what your secret is. People deserve to get a second chance. And Girardi, in a way, gets – and another thing he said that I thought was very poignant was you should not judge someone before you meet them. So if this guy comes in and he wants to look at the maturation pro- process and maybe Joe Girardi – can make Aroldis Chapman a better person. I'm not saying he will, but I know Joe could have that effect on somebody. You brought it up at the beginning of the podcast with the segment about his mother yep. on, on center stage, which, which debuts uh, tonight. tonight. Thursday night. Thursday we'll night. But the thing you have to realize is before you go out there and criticize someone, and he, he made a mistake. I'm not saying he didn't. No charges were were pressed. You know he's not going to face any um, penalty with the law. So you look at it from Major League Baseball. Now the court of public opinion is going to have their opinion, yep. and of course everybody knows that's the only opinion that matters. And and you can't you can't judge. We've gone over this in other times too. You can't necessarily judge a person by one transgression. And you can't I, let that define them. Right. And and that's the way it should be across the board. Like everybody that makes one mistake, it gets onto social media and they're a pariah for the rest of their life. I don't get it. I, you know, people are allowed to make mistakes. And the only reason why, you know, some people out there who make mistakes, they no one knows is because they're not in the public eye. Yeah. You know, I've made mistakes. I'm sure you've made mistakes. Sure. And believe you me, I've paid for them. And then some. You know, it. The court of public opinion is very much it's, – it's very much one of the few things Silent Bob ever said in a film, in a Kevin Smith film. The man can build a thousand bridges and you probably know where I'm going with that. Mm-hmm. He's not a bridge builder. He's the other thing. Yeah. That's yeah. the court of public opinion. Yep. The man can do a thousand charity hours and – you know, help Habitat for Humanity and coach for the homeless and work with underprivileged kids and RBI and this and that. And you know what? He 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 drives a little. He gets intoxicated and makes a bad decision to drive and gets a DUI and that's it. He's a drunk who made a bad decision. Doesn't matter what. And look, it's, you can't judge someone by one. If someone's out there, yeah. yeah. Somebody, now, Deshaun Jackson, you know, it's a little different. But if someone's out there thinking that we condone what happened. Or what allegedly happened. No, uh, we don't. We don't. And we're not just saying this because the guy is a Yankee now. It's the way it should be across the board. The and I know... Thing, I, same thing goes for Jose Reyes and Yasiel Puig. Mm-hmm. I mean, their investigations are still ongoing. You don't hear a lot of negative press about Jose Reyes in his career. And, you know, he got into the domestic violence incident with his wife in Hawaii or wherever it was. You know, that's he he made a mistake. I don't condone it, but he made a mistake. You have to give him a chance to live it. Here's a perfect way to spin this because we were both down on Greg Hardy too, and I still am. And and you know what? For what Chapman did, I'm down on him a little bit. But there's no reason why either one of those guys can't come back and prove that they are not that person, that alleged person. Uh, and here's and here's how you do it. Henry Mejia. Yeah, that's a little different. We kind of know what Henry Mejia is, and that's an idiot. 
three times? An absolute idiot. In under a year? Th- I tweeted this. This, of course, broke, you know, at five five oh one on a Friday. Um, so, you know, I just got to tweet about it a little bit, and we didn't get to talk about it on Monday when we mailed it in for President's Day. Um, this is what I don't understand. And even John Heyman, who's a well-respected baseball insider for multiple outlets over his career, mm-hmm. basically called Henry, Henry Mejia an idiot without calling Henry, Henry Mejia an idiot. You get suspended for, I forget the name of the steroid now, it's, but it's the same thing. It's not even just PEDs. It's, he's failed a test for the same thing three times. Three times. Thrice. Mm-hmm. And I'm not. And, and by the way, I'm not comparing that to domestic violence. No, either. but it's this, just an this example. Is, this is the recidivist mentality. You fail a test for Bertalone or something like that is what it was. You fail a test for it in April. You get suspended for 80 games. You come back within two or three weeks because he pitched a couple of times in the minors as like a rehab outing, mm-hmm. and then came back to the Mets for two weeks in July. Within less than a month after your suspension ends for that, you get suspended a second time for the same thing. And then eight months later, nine months later, whatever it is, eight roughly. Less than a year. That's less than a year. No. Less than a year. Ten and change months after you were first suspended for this, you get suspended a third time banned for life for the same thing while you're serving a suspension for testing positive for it banned for life how stupid do you have to be to get caught doing something that you're in time out for while you're in time out for it after you've already been caught twice you know I, and i don't want to turn this into any other social socio economic i got you but you know you just wonder, like, what? Who's in his ear? Like, uh, like what, is is it a call? Like, you almost wonder. I know. I forget who it was that got in trouble. Was it Colin Cowherd that got in trouble for for talking about Latin American players? Yes, it was him. You know, but you wonder. Like, sometimes these are the things that creep in. You wonder, like, is there like some kind of culture difference that, like, some kind of brain chemistry we're not thinking of? Like, because a normal thinking human being. Would probably be like, you know what, I should probably lay off the PEDs You know here. what, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know him. I, I've never interviewed him. I've never been around him. Uh, but I can tell you this. If I was a New York Met and my teammate came back in the clubhouse after the first suspension and seven games later he was gone again, I would not want him back on that And team. I, I honestly, I know Mets, pit, Ever. Uh, Mets pitchers and catchers Ever. reported yesterday in their position players report early next week. I can't wait to see what David Wright says about this. Because David Wright's been that voice of reason, well, if he know, was, the captain if, for the Mets. If he was pissed off at somebody eating lunch in the clubhouse yeah, during a game. I, I can't wait to see what he says about that. And that'll be, that'll be fun. And who was that? Syndergaard? Syndergaard. Yeah. Um, who happens to be one of the best pitchers in the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Mejia is a, is a, you know, has had yeah. one good major league season as a closer. Um, see how I put that in there? Yeah, see that? Very good. Um, Giddy up. The thing is, like, yeah, like, I just, I, not only would I not want him back, I'd be like, you know, what, what are you doing? Like, what, just, duh. You make it to the show. What's the percentage of baseball players on the planet who make it to the show? It's got to be astronomically Even low. if you count the 40-man roster. Right. 
at any one given and, – and maybe we'll say the disabled list, the 40-man roster and the disabled list for 60-day disabled list. At any one given time, 4 times 3 is 12, so we'll go 1,200. There's 1,250 players making a major league salary at any given point in time. 1,250. Out of how many baseball players worldwide? Well, there's another probably 5,000, 5 to 6,000 in the minors, 8,000 in the minors, and, you know – ton more than that in college, collegiate programs, and high school, which people can be drafted out in JUCO and international and people playing. And yeah, if it's you had the, the ballpark, it's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the 1%. Yeah, 1%. 1%. He made it and he threw it away. Yeah. Now, here's the other, the other side of this before we go back to Girardi. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the other side of this that I find hilarious that from things I've read. And funny, then, haha, or funny, like. Like that, a clown? That, like, that's cute, Major League Baseball gotcha. funny. Okay. Apparently, while he doesn't get paid mm-hmm. for it, Henry Mejia accrues Major League service time while he's suspended. Because... Don't be- tell me he gets a pension. No. Well, he won't because whatever. But because the, he and the Mets had agreed on a contract, he was arbitration eligible because they had agreed on a contract and the Mets had agreed to a contract. He will gain a year of service time this year while he's suspended and the Mets will have to non-tender him. He'll be on the restricted list so they they can have a 40-man roster. But the Mets will have to non-tender him in November. Meaning? Like how the Yankees non-tendered Domingo Herman and Vicente Campos, like take him off the 40-man roster. They're arbitration eligible. We're, We're renouncing our rights to him. Gotcha. But he'll accrue a year of service time. This year, while he's suspended. Why? Which, which for what? Mean, which means what? He's, he's for, done. For what? He's gone. It's another step towards a pension. What if he does come back and he ends up with 10, 10 years and one day of service time? The year he suspended got him a pension? Yeah, but he's not coming back. Well, he's not, but just theoretically. like that's, that's kind of a loophole Major League Baseball might want to look does at. Does the Players Association even think about appealing? How can you? I mean, they have to just on principle, I think. They, but it's I their mean, job. Yeah. Same reason that they had to appeal any of these, any suspension. I'm not a good Catholic, but who's the patron saint of lost causes? I'll have to look that up. Our Lady of Perpetual Agony. <laughs> Isn't that the church from something? <laughs> the naked gun is Our Lady of the Iron Underwear. Um, but yeah, so he accrues <laughs> a year of Major League Service time, and the Mets have to oh, non-tender baby. him like that because you know that makes sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, while I look up that uh, saint, I'm going to throw this at you really quick so we could discuss this. Uh, the last thing I had from um, – well, well, first, just to finish up Chapman really quick. This, this I, I wrote down some stuff from his answer on Chapman. Uh, you have to – this is what he said, paraphrasing. You have to watch the behavioral patterns to see uh, if he's maturing, uh, if he could come over here, handle expectations – uh, he said some people have done things in life they wish they could have done differently. Uh, basically, he got biblical. Uh, he didn't say this, but this is what came to my mind when he was going through his little ramble there on this. He who hath not sinned cast the first stone, and he's pretty he- – uh, he nailed that one. Uh, don't label before you get to know them. I mentioned that. Um, uh, Girardi is very concerned of domestic violence so much that he talks to his kids about it. Uh, he said he went at it with his sister. He said his son goes at it with his sisters, yep. and he tells them it's it's a very sensitive subject. Um, he also brought this up too. You know, this is why I love Girardi as a manager because he's not just 
a you know he's not, his mind is constantly working baseball. You can yeah. tell even in his post game press conferences, like people are asking him questions. I know that the hamsters are running around in his head mm-hmm. if they lost. What he could have done differently, even if it was nothing, he's thinking in his head, "Oh, I could have done this, I could have done that." As he's answering questions, you know. But that's the way he is, and he brought up, you know, if guys have an issue at home, I want them to go home and fix it because when they're here, I want them concentrating on yeah. this a hundred percent. And he even mentioned it. He said, you know, he, he talked about marriage and it takes work. And you know, when he was given his, when he was in the middle of that answer about the domestic violence policy and its effects and all that, and like he said, you know, he has two daughters, and you know, just like every other marriage, you know, I'm sure you and you and Jacqueline have had days where you're not on the best of. The, the same wavelength on things. Oh, have and, we ever? And, and the same goes for me and Jess, and the same goes for Joe and Kim Girardi too. But he, as he said, like you know, things take work, so you have to work on them and take care of the things you have to work on in in a civilized way. Saint Jude, Saint Jude. He needs to pray to Saint Jude. Hey Jude, that's the patron saint of lost causes. Yes, and they named the children's hospital after that. That seems like a weird juxtaposition of well, thought maybe. processes. Let's not talk about yeah. that. Yeah. No, anyway. Talk about that. But, you know, the, <laughs> point, the point being is that, you know, it's it's an issue and it's something that needs to be addressed. But like you said, Joe said, I want them to fix it because when they're here, I need them focused on baseball. Yeah. Some people can do that better than others. Yes. And the last thing that I wanted to bring up before we talk about the Nets and their recent hire um, is a question that came up. That really, I just, I shook my head in disgust. Is this the wild card game question? Yes. Okay. All right. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw it out there. You're gonna say what the question actually translates to in safe space speak, right? And then I'm gonna give you the answer that Girardi wanted to give but didn't. He gave the. Manager speak answer. Okay. So here we go. Toss it to me, Z. Next question. Yeah. It, it was basically, do you feel like you have to mend fences with Jacoby Ellsbury, Lou? Joe, as someone's boss, do you feel the need to have to apologize or make nice and make sure you didn't hurt the feelings of a 32-year-old man who's making $150 million over the next seven years to play a game, and yet he was so bad at playing that game for a stretch in time at one point that you had to tell him he couldn't play one day? Okay, so now that Lou has given you the question in the safe speech 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 I can't speak of this time in our uh, glorious history, um, let me <laughs> can you just see what I underlined when that was asked? That's what I wrote down. Professional okay. underline underline underline, and the underlines got smaller, so you know he meant it. Here, I wrote as I heard that question before he even started answering. You're a professional athlete. You're not in college. You're not in high school. And by the way, if you were in college or high school and your coach yelled at you or benched you for a game, they don't have to apologize to you. You're supposed to take that as a kick in the you-know-what and get your you-know-what in gear and get back on the field and do better when, you, when your number's called again. So here's the answer. If I'm Joe Girardi and I'm basically livid by being asked that question and he was he was he was relaxed that was a question that needed to be asked on october 6th right and maybe october 8th or whenever it was that right. joe had his final press conference right on and i think it was uh, it was on february 18th 
should be done and over with a long time ago. Me and, and Paul Ferrigno, our camera uh, person extraordinaire who, who, who did the press conference with me, I, you know, when the press conference started and all the way up until that question, which was towards the end, you know, the manager of the Yankees is pretty much like being the president of the United States when it comes to the pressures involved and and the aging process of the manager. We've talked that being a manager of any, yeah, any we, we've talked about that. But like the that. Yankees yeah. specifically, I mean, there's a lot. Maybe uh, maybe being the manager of the Twins is like being the president of I don't know, Bolivia or someone uh, that's a little less. Uh, yeah, yeah, little that's time. good. Yeah, I don't know why I just turned to Glenn G and Grandy there, but I did. But. Um, <laughs> But here's my point. Well played. Yeah, thanks. Um, if you're a professional and your feelings get hurt by your manager, then void you, your contract and go home. You don't belong in the major leagues. And I'm not saying Ellsbury was hurt, but your point is very well taken. This isn't a question for now. And he looked so comfortable, so relaxed, shoulders, you know, in his press conferences after the season, even after a loss on opening day. You know, he's, he's hunched over, he's tense, he's, you know, all right, I got to get through this so I can go watch tape and see what the hell went wrong. And, you know, today, he, you know, he's just laid back, his shoulders are out there, he's just flowing with it. He's just, you know, he's being Joe. It was great. This question gets asked. Demeanor Flipped. changes yeah. in a heartbeat. And he immediately said, that's nothing I ever said. That's something that was generated by people mm -hmm. out there. He immediately said that in the middle of the question. Pointed that out. Pointed to the media and said that was something you people yeah. you know, brought up. Not me. So right there, he's sticking up for the guy that he, everybody wants him to apologize and make fen men fences Like with. I said, on October 6th, it was a very valid question. On October 8th or 9th or whenever he did his end-of-season conference, yeah, you got to ask it again. On February 18th, it's done. It's a I dead get, issue. I get why you have to ask it even in October when the season ends because you know he's, he's making all that money and he's your starter the whole season and he doesn't play. I get why you have to ask it, but at the same time, if you're a professional athlete – you shouldn't have to be, you know, if you got into a knockdown dragout like Billy got into with Reggie in a dugout in Boston when he pulled him out of the game, you would expect that. Quite, I mean, are you guys going to mend fences in order to get. Or the alleged Jorge Posada batting ninth and taking himself out of the lineup thing. Right. Joe right. That too. I mean, those things, you know, in, in order for the clubhouse to not be tense, yeah, you, you move. But that? He's 32. He's a multimillionaire. He's 30, 32 years old. He's making $25 million a year. And you know what? Let's be 100% let's be fair. The way I asked it is the way it is. And, you know, you have to say things with some tact and some decorum and some whatever you, know what? you want to say. He should have hit. If he hit, he would have been right. in the lineup. But realistically, you know the answer to that question is, listen, Chris Young hit lefties very well last year. That was his job. He did it well. Jacoby Ellsbury and Brett Gardner's jobs was to hit baseballs. Both of them did that poorly in the second half of last season. And, and Gardner and even was more poor. Yeah, and even more poorly poorer, whatever the proper verb tense is, against left-handed pitchers. So one of the two of them was going to sit that game because Chris Young did his job better than they did theirs. The decision was made by Joe Girardi, and he said, "I did I, the decision I made was what I felt was best for the team. He thought that the best decision was to have Gardner play center field, Young play left, and Ellsbury sit. And you know what? I understand if it was the other way around, you would have had to have 
gotten the same questions about, you know, did you hurt Brett Gardner's feelings? And I understand that if Chris Young didn't play, the question would be like, well, why did Ellsbury and Gardner play when they stink against lefties and Chris Young hit them well? You're going to get the question no matter what the decision you make is. That's the depth of the decision. They should just rename. It's a dead issue four and a half months later. They should just rename New York the damned if you do, damned if you don't city. Because if you make one decision, just like you said, you're going to be drilled for it if, if, if the other guy isn't in the lineup. But if you make the decision, then you're going to deal with those questions afterwards. And this is a question that's asked by someone that, that we generally love as a person and a human being and a baseball reporter. So, I mean, it's, it is what it is. I, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I just I didn't get it. I mean, again, I understand why um, it would be asked, but at the same time, not in February, and, not before spring training. And, you know, the thing is, too, is we're in the middle of next week starts. We have all 40 players on the 40-man roster, including Greg Bird at this point in time because he's already done. Um, you know, one, one a day for the next – Six weeks-ish through opening day, we're going to have what we did last year, the 40-man roster preview, look back at the guy's stats, you know, what he did last year, the synopsis for this year, expectations, blah, blah, blah. And I just did – I literally just did Brett Gardner and Jacoby Ellsbury yesterday. I did both of them yesterday and saw their numbers in the second half and how Ellsbury was hitting like 320 before that at-bat where he tweaked his knee in, in D.C. Mm-hmm. and then w- missed seven weeks and then – you know, went into the tank in the second half, and maybe it was knee related, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, whatever. And you have to expect to bounce back. But you know what? That was last year. Last year is over. As the monkeys once said, that was then. This is now. This is now. I believe that was 1986, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'm just looking to see because I'm I'm curious. I wanted to see what he was against Keiko last year, but you know what? It doesn't matter. He wasn't hitting during the, the, the end of the season. He just wasn't. He was, I think I, I saw his splits against lefties last year, but they weren't, I mean, he, he didn't really hit well against either so righties or lefties. Here's, he was 258 against righties and 253 against lefties. Ellsbury? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, here's the thing about that is that I, in looking at those numbers, I do remember that Ellsbury's splits were pretty close, and Gardner was actually better against lefties than he was against righties last year. Gardner should play every day. But again— I, I get why, and my dad and I talk right. about this all the time, but Gardner should play every freaking day. Here, he was—Ellsbury oh, was two for seven— with a walk and a strikeout against Keuchel last year. I think Gardner had slightly better numbers, and that ended up playing into it too. The point I was going to make is this. As much as we said, I can look at a 270 – you know, Brooke Gardner is a 270 hitter. I know one out of every four times he gets up, he's going to get a hit. Like, we talked about that in the stats all the way at the beginning of the show. Gardner was 0 for 7 with three strikeouts. Mm, I thought it was better. My mistake. I apologize. You can – the court of public opinion can shame me on Twitter all you want. Um, Bully Lou. Yeah, I'll go cry. Hashtag bully Lou. I'll go cry in my safe space. Yeah. Um, the point is, is that you know, their second half numbers were lower against lefties. They were lower. It just that's the decision. Yes, you can't. There's a fine line between platooning everybody to play the best matchups, and this guy's a star. He should be able to do his job. But when it comes to that wild card game, like I said, when you have two guys who hit poorly on the whole, and especially against lefties in the second half. Versus a guy who did his one job. You had one job, yeah. and he did it really well. Yeah, you got to make that decision. And it's going to be tough, but you know what? You get over it. I'm, I'm in the camp. If that were me, I would have sat on the bench, and I wouldn't have sulked. I'd be like, you know what? No, we did I th- suck, and I need to not suck. You know suck. what? We did this show around that time, and we both agreed with him then. Yeah. Regar- I, regardless of I how sat much in the press mo- box above home plate and watched Dallas Keuchel look like Cy Young against right. that team. That All right, let me, let me just— I got it. Before, I get it. Before we just— 
end with a quick little Nets blurb here. I, I, great talking baseball, by the way. Um, let me just throw this out at you. You're a uh, hypothetical star player. Um, going into the playoff game, let's say it's you're the number one wild Same thing as the Yankees. Number one wild card. You have a one-game playoff. Uh, you're starting left fielder who... And you're facing the eventual Cy Young winner as well? Yes. Yes. That out there. Same, same thing. Let, let's say you're, fa- you're, you're going to face Kershaw. Uh, he ended the season... Oh, for his last 20 against lefties. And you have a platoon guy who has been mashing the hell out of lefties all season long, including Kershaw. Who are you going to start if you're the manager? The platoon guy. In a one-game play? What? You're not going to put the guy in that makes enough, a lot of money? You're going to put the platoon guy in? No. What are you trying to do? Lose the game? No, and you know what? It's the same thing, and I've, I've railed Yankees fans for this in the past, too. It's the same thing that people always say, oh, this guy sucks. He's a bum. you got to fit him, this and that. Money shouldn't dictate, blah, 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 blah. Well, here's the one time where money didn't dictate that, and people are still all over him. So yeah. you know what? Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Exactly. Because you know what? I'll tell you what. Now, one, if I need one game... You always get that question. If you had one game to win, who do you want at the plate or who do you want on the mound? If I have one game to win, I'm damn sure putting in the guy who I think is going to do better and has done better against what I'm facing. Your job. If it's game one of the ALDS and I'm facing Dallas Keuchel, yeah, Ellsbury's in the lineup. Your, your job as a manager is to put the best nine guys on the field and in the DH slot that you feel give yeah. your team the best chance to win. And in that game against the Astros... That's what Joe Girardi did. That's what Joe Girardi did. And if you think it was an aberration with Keuchel, go look up his numbers against the Yankees last year, including that playoff game. And look at the entire team's numbers against left-handers in September. Go we talked about it on the podcast Go look it up. Time. Go look it up. The, the Yankees, Google it, millennials. The Yankees were not winning that game. No business winning that game. Based on... Stats. What Keuchel did to them during the season. So anyway, uh, before we go, because we're almost at the magic hour, buddy. Yeah. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, this morning. This morning officially have turned the page from Billy King, and they brought in Sean Marks, the assistant general manager of the San Antonio Spurs, to be their new general manager. It's uh, the day of the trading deadline. Four hours, I believe Devin tweeted, four hours and 44 minutes before the trade deadline, right. they, they announced the hiring of a new GM. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of nets that could be shopped. But, you know, according to Mikhail Prokhorov, who said he didn't know who Sean Marks was at the uh, press conference for the new training facility, <laughs> hires him the next day. He also said he didn't want to trade that or Brooke. But uh, I got to be honest, and this is going to be an unpopular opinion around here, but The things he says and does and the way he runs the team, and even though he wrote that Mia Culpa I on saw the players' tribune, yeah. if I were a fan of the Brooklyn Nets, I would be kind of worried about my team the entire t- – until he doesn't own it anymore, I'd be kind of well, worried about here's it. Here's like, why I wouldn't he, be. His, his, I, Mikhail Prokhorov is, a, is probably a great businessman, and I don't know the man personally. I, I ran into him in the elevator at Barclays Center a couple weeks ago when I was there for the Grizzlies. He's a very large man. I know that. I like he may be a great businessman, but lots of fadeaway jumpers. This team is like th- this franchise has has been a. You look at it on the whole over the last five years has been just a disaster waiting to happen. Well, if he's guarding you, a lot of fadeaway jumpers. But here, here I want to counter that with I, I think starting today when they made that announcement this morning, uh, Thursday as we tape this, this is a in my opinion um, 
we all know what opinions are are like. Mm-hmm. Um, but you take a guy from a organization that is pretty much the blueprint for what you want your organization to be in the San Antonio Spurs, and you bring him into the fold. Now, everybody has the salary cap space this offseason, okay? But Marks probably already has a plan in place. Now, here's what you do. Mikhail Prokhorov has come out, and he has said, what is this team's philosophy going to be? Are we going to be an offensive team? Are we going to be a defensive team? We have to figure these things out. Are we going to be a three-point shooting team? Well, this is the first step into figuring out what that philosophy is. And the Nets did it the opposite Jets way and brought in a GM who could hire his own head coach. Now, if you want my honest opinion, and I know you think Tony Brown could just finish out the rest of the season and everything will be hunky-dory. Uh-uh, no way. If he has an idea, he needs to do it now. If Marks has a guy, if he has a philosophy in place in mind, and he has a guy that, isn't, that doesn't have a job, mind you, the, the trigger needs to be pulled now. You need to get a guy in here to finish out the rest of the season, get to know what he has in his starters, on his bench, after the trading deadline. I'm sure Tony Brown, who's done an admirable job since Lionel Hollins was fired and Billy King was reassigned, I'm sure Tony will go back to sitting where he was sitting beforehand uh, on the bench. And again, Tony Brown has been the consummate professional. He's handled the media uh, great. Uh, He gives the media everything they need. Uh, He's very approachable. So I have nothing but good things to say about Tony Brown. However, if he's not your guy moving forward, and he probably isn't, let's face facts, you got to get Sean Marks to get this coach in right now. And not to rush it, not to rush it. But if you get a coach in place before the season is over, and I'm talking about within the next month, and he could coach the Nets the last... You know, think Phil Jackson coming in and running the Knicks. The, there's the eight weeks. There's season. eight weeks left. The NBA season ends eight weeks from yesterday. He came in and started the process in March. Yep. Before the season ended, and he and and it actually puts players on notice because naming a coach says, "Okay, this is our guy. This is our guy moving forward. You guys better play your rear ends off now if you want a job next year." And this is this this is Tony Brown right now. From Friday, today, really, but Friday, when they, tomorrow when they open the second half against the Knicks, until either April 13th when their season ends, or some point before then when Tony Brown's no longer the interim head coach, whether he is named the head coach or someone else has named the head coach. Tony Brown's job is to do whatever Sean Marks tells him to do in terms of player development. Tony Brown is now an agent of Sean Marks. If Sean Marks comes in and says, look, you know, this could, what I'm saying could all change in the next hour and a half because the trade deadline is 90 minutes away as we finish the show. If he comes in and says, look, you know what? We're not, we're going to move on from Jared Jack. We don't have a point guard. Donald Sloan has been playing well. We want to put him in a situation to see if he's part of the future. You need to feature Donald Sloan. Tony Brown's next word should be, yes, sir, Sean. Yeah. If he says, look, we need to create something for Brooke and Thad, see what we have, blah, 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 blah. Tony Brown's next word should be, you got it, Sean. That's his job. He's the caretaker of this team right now. It starts with Sean Marks. If Tony Brown coaches well enough in the next two months, 
to earn the full-time job, great. Awesome. Congratulations. Like you said, Tony Brown's a great guy, great coach, you know, would be a good choice. If they interview Tom Thibodeau or Lionel Hollins or any other big-name coach, Derek Fisher, any other coach who's out there that's currently out of a job and they feel that Sean feels that he's the right man for or a job. Or David Blatt, even. Yep, should hire him and install him right away. If if you talk to – I'm just going to use Tom Thibodeau as, as an example. If you talk to Tibbs right now and Sean Marks interviews him tomorrow and loves him and feels, you know what, I don't need to interview anybody. I don't know if the NBA is a Rooney rule or anything like that where they got to interview multiple candidates or certain candidates. You know, if you feel he's the guy and you have you, all your obligations fulfilled, if you, talk, if you talk to him on Friday and you feel on Saturday he's the guy and you offer him the job on Sunday and he accepts, Monday morning he should be the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. And this is why that helps. But if they don't, you have the guy you you have Tony Brown working for you on the court while you look for the guy who's going to be the next leader. But this is why it helps if you would go out there and get a coach now. You don't have to, but it makes the process easier when free agency starts. Because yeah. if you don't have a coach before free agency, if you're still interviewing guys when July first rolls around, you need a coach. You need a coach in place. That's what it's all about. If you want to attract a major free agent to come to Brooklyn and you still don't have a vision, they're not coming here. You need a coach in place. You need somebody that, you know, these free agents could look to and say, yes, that is going to be a positive mm -hmm. uh, addition to the net. Like Tibbs, let's just say hypothetically it's Tibbs and he comes in and you're able to attract a big name free agent, whoever that may be. Um, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's Kevin Durant, even though Tibbs is a defensive guy. Uh, and that's what he does, and that's why the Bulls hated him. Yep. Um, I don't think he's going to tell Kevin Durant <laughs> yeah. how to play the game of basketball. Uh, listen, this just all moves ahead in line. And if you could bring a guy like Durant in, which I've said before, and you get a point guard, you might not be a championship team. You might not be, but you're a playoff team. And you've got the building blocks to get to where you want to be because without draft picks, without making a deal today. And as Lou said, Mark's had four hours and 44 minutes from the time he was hired to try to get something done. If he can't get something done, it's all going to be about the free agency yeah. next year. And I'm sure that Frank Zanin, in his interim time as acting assistant general manager in training in charge. I'm sure he's made calls. Has made calls. And, and he's probably, advised. And as soon as Sean Marks got into the office, as soon as he was introduced, he's, Frank probably came to him and said, all right, here's what we got to possibly on the table is that it's your show now. Take it away. Take it away. And you know what? I, I'm, and, I'm, and, and, and Sean Marks. Yep. He's in the league. I'm pretty sure he knows what the hell's yep. going on. And I'll tell you what, the last time one of the last time uh RC Buford and the Spurs had their top lieutenant poached, uh Oklahoma City's done pretty well for themselves, no? Yes, they have. With, so, uh, with Sam Presti, so And that's why I think yeah. even though it, it may still be a couple of years off, the Nets are moving in the right yep. direction. And I, I, I will make you one of our patented Chris Sheeran show mini wagers. Okay. We can set the bar at a beverage the next time we go out. Okay. The next head coach of the Brooklyn Nets, I'm going to take three possibilities, mm -hmm. and I'm going to give you the field. Okay. The next head coach of the Brooklyn Nets, for me, will be either a current collegiate head coach, mm -hmm. a member of the San Antonio Spurs organization, mm -hmm. or Tony Brown. And I'll give you the field. Hmm. I can even take Tony off the table, but I'm keeping the collegiate head coach or a member of the Spurs organization. 
versus the field? You know, just because, and this is no disrespect to Thibodeau and no disrespect to uh, David Blatt, who did a tremendous job with the Cavaliers, and we've, we've talked about already, we're not getting into that again, on how he's out of a job after being so successful. Um, but I tend to agree with you. I- I'm sorry, but I do. It- it's either, and I know we tweeted out that he's not going to leave Kentucky, but Cal's out there. Uh, not even necessarily Coach Cal. I, I wouldn't. I don't think I would want someone that high profile, ideally. But you know, we talked about when we talked about this with Devin, and we talked about how it might, now might be the time. You know, Billy Donovan hasn't had it easy, and he was a big name coach at Florida, but he's not Calipari. He's not Roy Williams. He's not Coach well, K. Brad Stevens wasn't Coach right. K, or but, but he Bre- brought Butler to. But back-to-back Brad Stevens Final brought Wars. Butler. Mark Few at Gonzaga, for example, mid-major school. Not the best at recruiting, you know. People don't go there like if they're if they're able to say I want to go to Gonzaga to play basketball. Chances are they're probably able to say like I want to go to like Kansas, or North Carolina, or somewhere else too. But someone in that ilk, someone who's been a successful lower lower power conference to mid major coach, someone like Brad Stevens was at Butler, someone like Mark Few at Gonzaga, someone like someone like Ed Cooley at Providence right now, who came up through coaching at Fairfield. And then, you know, up into Providence. Someone like Keno Davis when he was at Wichita State. Someone whoever, like that. Whoever it may be, okay? And you said, you know, you don't... I'm sorry, not Wichita State, Drake. You're not really, right. you know, behind the way it's been up and down with Mikhail Prokhorov. But he did say something at the training facility uh, unveiling that was very telling. And he took a shot. He took a shot at one of the Nets' former players. <laughs> yeah, he did. And basically what he said, and I loved what he said, we need to bring a GM in and a coach that have the same vision. And it's their vision that the players have to say, okay, this is it. We get on board or we get out of here. That's what the Nets need to do. They want people who want to be here. You can't have one guy in the locker room trying to butt heads with the direction the team wants to go. And I'm pretty sure, Net fans, you know who that one guy was that Prokhorov was talking about. I don't have to say it. There are missing posters. Yeah, his name rhymes with Aaron Gilliams. Yes. So there you go. I'm not going to mention any names, but his initials are Darren Williams. That just made me think of Armin Gilliam, the hammer. Yeah. Former Net himself. Former Net himself. You're right. But that's why I think... Doing what they did with, with Billy and Lionel and, and making this move today, Thursday, as we tape this. I know you don't have draft picks. You know, you have, a, you have the, I think it's none, swap, none. And you got four and a half hours to get creative. <laughs> right. So if there's any um, negativity yep. to what's been going on lately, it's that they waited until four hours and 44 minutes before you the know trading what? deadline. Fans, but at least they got the guy they want. It's not going to be overnight, and it may not be next year. Hopefully it's not the 76ers, but yeah. it's going to take a while. But the, the first piece of the puzzle is in place. Now it's on Sean Marks to find the guy that shares his vision, and then it's on them to look at the roster and assess and figure out. And they don't need to do anything drastic right now. No. They can do things fluidly for the next, you know what, I'll give them a year and change. Because this year with the trade deadline and free, all that, and then g- going into free agency with cap space and who knows what's available and this and that. So I'll give me a year. Hey. We can reconvene in March 
of next year and see how they're doing. But you got to give them at least that. You have to. And uh, listen, I'm not going to sit here and try to pull the wool over your eyes, Doug or um, John or Matt. Matt. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know I'm better than that. And you know I'm very candid and frank with you on Twitter. I don't sugarcoat things. Uh, and none of our analysts do either. Donnie Marshall, Mike Fratello, and Jim Spinarkle, Sarah Kustak. They, they all basically tell it like it is. And, and that's very refreshing. And you should be happy that these people are, are bringing you these games on a day-in, day-out basis. Because, and, and guys like Ian Eagle, you, you get what the team is. And, and everybody, I mean, you look at the record, you know what they are. It's always darkest before the light. And you could bring up any other cliche you want to bring up. And I know that they, they were in the playoffs the past three years, and now they're not going to be. And last year, if you want to count that, you know, taking the Hawks to six games, eh, you know what? They were the eighth seed. And if people were healthy, they, they might have gotten by that. But here's another thing I want to throw out at you, Net fans. And it's something I think about to this day. Two years ago, when they took the heat to five games. They lost in five. Less than they, they took the Hawks to last year. The Nets not could have. The Nets should have won that series. They had beaten the Heat four times. In the season. Nets should have beaten the Heat. The Nets were up in the fourth quarter in two of those losses. Two. You flip-flop those losses into wins. It's 3-2 going into game six in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. I'm telling you... Would you now, if Prokhorov and Billy King were able to get a title in Brooklyn with that team, does that change your opinion about those guys? I look forward to hearing your tweets and response as you listen to this. And my short answer before we wrap it up is it does, but it changes it in the way that some people may look at the 2009 Yankees versus what's happened in the last six years. I get it. And that it was a championship but didn't build to anything. That's fair. That's absolutely fair, but they'd have a championship. Right. So there you go. I think that about does it. An hour and 15 minutes? Give or take. Pound it out there, buddy boy. That's it for the Chris Sheeran Show for this week. We'll be back next week with more hijinks and hilarity and stats. Uh, We'll break down sabermetrics of um, my day here at Yes. We got a very high war after this podcast because replacing us with two random other schmucks around here should be one. Oh, you'll have to explain that to me. Get off. Who? Huh? What? See you next time. Later.